I should know this. How many left-handers are in the room? Yeah, yeah. How many of you guys hated scissors growing up, right? Yeah, hated scissors. Why were they? Why, why would you make scissors only for one pe people group? What is happening? I don't understand. I mean, I can't. You, oh, I have to turn it upside down. No, that doesn't work either. Liar. It's a little better, but it doesn't work. Work. Uh, any left-handers ever written on a chalkboard? Big fan, right? Big fan. No, never. I ask. I, I, I'm a grown man, but in staffing, it's like, hey, can, can someone else write on the whiteboard? I can't. Why? Well, because I erase it as I go. This is what I do. <laughs> Why? Oh, there's, there it is. <laughs> it's all blue. There it was. There it was. Uh, Left-handed is, is weird. It's not really that big of a deal. Uh, I got called. Uh, names when I was a kid usually it was good because it was sports related so it just connect to any left-handed person they know you know they're like hey lefty and you're like yeah yeah and that, that, that'd be it like okay all right but I do remember this my, my sweet parents are here uh, I remember this story in the Bible because this guy as I, I think my mom pointed out to me is, is like the hero of left-handed people okay <laughs> If, if in the Bible you've been searching for a hero, you've been something like, how do I, wh wh where, where, where are me? Where's my representation, right? If that's what you're saying, here it is. Here's your guy, okay? It's Ehud. Now, we're going to get into it, but uh, this, is, this is the cycle beginning. So if I'm going to show you kind of this scene or this story as we walk through Judges, uh, we're going we're gonna to connect the dots where we've been and kind of a little bit of where we're going, but just to jump into it. This scene is <clears throat> let the cycle begin. So everything that we've been saying up to this point has just kind of been leading to the cycle begins. So if you have a Bible, will you look at it with me? Judges 3, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath you in the chair or around you somewhere. Uh, we call those pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at all, take that home. You can have it. We want you to have a Bible. I want you to be able to see it too as we read this. I, I, um, I don't think I'm that smart. Like, can I confess them to you? I'm not that smart. I'm not that witty. I'm not that clever. I can't make up enough content every week to keep this thing going. What I believe is this, this, this is it. This is it. That this is the goodness. This is what I want you to feast from. Okay? And one part of that, just be able to see it yourself. Okay? Don't put your hope in me. Don't think, oh, that's some good thoughts. No, let's wrestle with this, okay? Judges 3, verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the bells and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King C. And the Israelites served him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King C, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So again... This cycle is beginning. It's a repeated phrase. And what have we seen up to this point? The people have no king, and they are doing what is right in their own eyes. And again, they're doing what's wrong in the Lord's eyes. This is a big deal. 
the story is just going to walk us through whose eyes do you see the world through? Whose eyes do you make choices through? Whose eyes filter your desires? You? Other people? The Lord. Because the Lord sees things. And what he sees is right. What he thinks is right. What he wants is right. What he desires is right. He says it's evil. They forget the Lord. Now, Dan said this last week, this, this forgetting is, is uh, it's not amnesia, right? As if they're no longer aware or they've forgotten who he is. If you connect this quickly back to just verses uh, 11 through 13 in chapter 2, it's speaking of forsaking Yahweh. That, that's what's happening here. To forget here is not a passive act of, ah, my bad, slipped my mind. No, it's an active act to disregard, to not take into account. Like I'm going golfing, but I forget my buddy who I'm fighting with, right? I forgot to invite you, man. <laughs> I forgot. You know, I don't really like you this week. That, I forgot, I forgot. Or I'm golfing 36 holes, forget my wife. That kind of forgetting, right? I didn't forget who she is. I'm not aware. It's like, no, I don't regard her. I do not take her into account. They disregarded Yahweh and served the Bells and Asherahs. This, this means they were no longer controlled with what they knew. They knew it, but it wasn't the ruling thought. It wasn't the ruling desire over their actions, their functional life. Tim Keller, in a lengthy quote, says this. Though they knew God, though they knew who God was and what he wanted, those things were not real to them. This is a spiritual problem today, too. What we know with our heads is not real to our hearts and our whole beings. We may acknowledge intellectually that something is true, but in our heart of hearts, it does not grab us or penetrate us or control us. So the reason that the Israelites, like all of us, continually needed revival is because the truths about God, which were once vibrant and real to them, eventually became unreal. I like this imagery. That's why I have this quote. Our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. Though we know truths about God, we can very easily lose the sense upon our hearts, the sense upon our hearts of their reality. We know them, but we don't taste or see or feel them. Therefore, other things, idols, become more real to our hearts and we serve them instead and that's what's happening here with the Israelites disregard no longer take into account Yahweh but begin to account regard esteem worship serve the bells and Asherahs the false gods now bells and Asherahs to the Canaanites to the Canaanites specifically Bel was the storm god He's the, the power behind life giving rain, feeding uh, the vegetation to grow. That's, that's the bell to the Canaanites. So think about this. 
if we're not going to stiff arm these guys and just keep this as archaic language, we're like, we don't, we're not in that world anymore. We don't have those idols and actually stay here and like what's going on with us and know that the Bible has said it's not just physical manifestations that are idolatrous. It is also idols in our heart. So to keep it there. And to think about Bell, the one that would give rain, that would feed the vegetation, that would provide for us, that would make it fertile, that would give us wealth. Let me ask this. Who gets the glory for your house, your car, your paycheck? And again, I'm not saying what's the right answer to that question. I'm asking in your life, who gets the glory? for the fertility, for the fertile, for the provision in your life? How do you functionally accept, receive your paycheck? How do you think about that? A Western person might give glory to the universe or himself. That was a little shorthand. Let me go back two weeks ago. I talked to you about knowing the the, the idolatrous practices of the people around you so that you don't follow in path, right? So in this regard, a Western person might give glory to the universe or to himself, right? To me. <laughs> I got this car. I got this house. I make this money. I get the bank. I hustle. A Christian gives glory to God. Now here's the issue in Judges. A syncretist gives glory to multiple gods. A syncretist mixes their faith with the idols of the culture. That's what syncretism is. It is not, this is devout following of Yahweh, and he asks every part of my life. First, a syncretist that would say, I have Yahweh, I have God, the God of the Bible. And he rules over some parts of my life, but I have other compartments of my life, and I submit to other gods for other parts of my life. What's the deal? What's the issue? It's helpful to think, because in the past, polytheism was very visible. You would see the multiple gods. You see Paul walking to Athens and saying, I saw your pantheon of gods. I saw your statues. He acknowledges this. But it's, it's a little bit more subtle underneath the surface to see what's going on in our hearts of we can confess we can proclaim we can say that we are worshiping jesus but like is that mean just relegated to a couple of hours throughout the week in this in this particular form maybe but your work your family here's the The uneasiness, I think the awkwardness comes here. A Christian can live as a syncretist. I mean, this can be us. But we're, we're not immune to having created compartments in our hearts and letting Jesus have some of it, but having multiple other gods that we serve, bow down to, rule us control us. Keller again, but in How to Reach the West again, he says this. 
While we may not be tempted toward literal polytheism, Christians in the West today certainly have to resist the lure of cultural idols, especially those that promise political power or social relevance. So let me ask you, consider what cultural idols are tempting you? At your work, in your friend group, what what idol would make you more relevant? What's that thing that just keeps tempting at you that, I mean, everyone's kind of say, everyone thinks this way. If I would actually give into this, then I'd be accepted finally, right? And maybe I could get a promotion, maybe. Or maybe this idol that you have that like, man, this is the thing and this will get my party, whatever it may be, political power. If you're unaware of the cultural idols around you, you'll be easily duped. Asherah to the Canaanites was Bel's female partner. So the fertility goddess, if you will. So for us, let me ask you, who do you functionally go to to get a family? What do you trust then to get you a spouse? What are you functionally hoping to have a child? Your actual hope, what is it in? An idol can be what you're going after, like you've got to get that, but it can also be the thing that you use to get where you want to go. That you, if, you, if you sync up with this idol, if you serve this idol, then it will give you that. It will promise to give you that power or that thing that you're longing for. An idol, just to be clear, is what you love firstly, above everything else, more than God. It's, an idol is anything that you trust more than Jesus. An idol can be answered in, what are you putting your happiness in? Why are you happy? Why are you happy? And you might have some things come to mind. Dig down a little bit deeper. Why are you happy? What really makes you happy? Or maybe answer this question. I can't live without... What's that? What's that? That, That's probably the idol that you're tempted to. In regards to family, spouses, fertility, a Western person might put their hope in an app or hope in fertility treatment. A Christian might use items but hope in Jesus. A syncretist puts their hope in multiple gods. Jesus, the apps, the dating apps, uh, the fertility doctor. I put our hope in everything. That's, I'm, I'm just, I got multiple things. The, my hope's in this for this part of my life. My hope's in this for this part of my life. My hope's in this for this part of my life. That's, that's syncretism. And then if you think about Bill and Asherah, and they're kind of a partner, they're, they're a couple in this divinity. Well, any, any, any fertility religion, if you've read any history, always has sexual deviancy and desire a part of it. 
So I, we're not going to cover and get into the depth of everything. I'm trying to begin to rake the ground to expose our hearts. Cultivate this a little bit. Some of this, this is brand new for you. You never thought about what's going on in your heart, of what actually you're loving. So in regards to sexual desire, deviancy of the fertility religions, let me ask you, where do you get your view of sexuality? Where did it come from? What person, what ideology has shaped your sexual thoughts in life? Whose words are you living by? Um, this is a generalization, but I think a Western person gets their view from pornography. A Christian submits to how Jesus sees it. It's the, the whole thing, right? How does Jesus see sexuality? I see sexuality the same way Jesus does. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. A syncretist, what they, eh, multiple views, right? A lot of blurred lines. It's like, I think Jesus really cares about this part of sexuality, uh, but whatever. Like these things, not that big of a deal, or a blurred, whatever. And again, a Christian can live as a syncretist. So this is the warning. This is the warning that's extremely, extremely relevant for us. Of Here we are. I know it's not the promised land. I know we're not thousands of years ago. But here we are in a country, in a nation, living as exiles. In a, in a land that's really not our own, longing for the day when new heavens and new earth is, is the joyous place we dwell with our God. Let me just come back to a Christian can live as a saint. So I don't want you to. I want you to know that where you're at surrounded with people around you just like the Israelites in the book of Judges with people that have differing gods differing practices for those gods different views of the major hot topic issues throughout all of history right they're not hot topic this year they've always been the same things they change a little bit manifest a little bit same things so how do we not, by the end of the book, become just like the Israelites and pick up more and more of the practices of the idolatrous people around us and serve more and more gods, even if it's with Jesus? It's not better. It's not better. I, maybe functionally in your life it's better to better to, to have some Jesus and a few other gods? Maybe it is, practically. I haven't thought about it. But it's not better than replacing Jesus with another god. It's like, oh, well, I still have Jesus, but I, I, I serve these other gods. So. That's not better. That's not good. That's not what he's expecting. That's what he's not hoping for. A, a jealous husband is not like, ah, great. You have three mistresses. You didn't kick me out and just replace me with someone you kept me 
and you have three people on the side. This is, this is life. This is marriage. This is what I was looking for. Jesus is, is, is after your whole heart in the way of that he wants to break down all those walls between all those compartments you've created and saying, it's mine. All of it is mine. All of it. Now, with this judges cycle, I want you to see this image. It's in your study guides. I don't think I talked about this last week. Uh, we have these for you. They're in the there and in the welcome center if you want one. I want you to see this. This is where we're going for the next few chapters, the rest of the book. Israel has peace, and Israel rebels. God punishes Israel. Israel cries out to God. God has mercy and appoints a judge. That judge delivers Israel. And Israel has peace. And we do this 12 times. Some of our very short episodes, but 12 times of this cycle. 12 times. Now, when we say judges, you should think less of a courtroom and more of a guerrilla military leader. That's what you should think of. Because it's very confusing if you're like, wait, what? A cattle prod? Why, why, why is the honorable uh, uh, Shamgar, why, why does he have a cattle prod? Shouldn't he have a gavel? What's going on? Oh, and he's killing people? What is this guy? Like, what is happening? It's not a judge that I know. But different language, okay? So think about that. And then one thing I want to say here about the spirit of the Lord that comes onto uh, Othniel. Uh, some people will simplistically just say that's what the Lord did in the Old Testament. He comes and goes, the spirit does, and now he's president. I mean, there's some, some validity to that statement, but I don't think it's that hard pressed. Such a black and white line. I'll say this. When you see the Spirit of the Lord come upon the judges, it signals the arresting presence and power of God. Often on individuals who are unqualified for this, right? Unqualified or, or not ready to do it, not wanting to do it. But the empowering presence of the Spirit of God here transforms this minor Israelite officer from the beer into the ruler of Israel. Does that make sense? It doesn't. It means, it means uh, someone in this room that may have recently served in the military and then the Spirit of God comes on you and we just made you president tomorrow. We don't even wait for the election. We're like, nah, this guy, president, let's go. Let's not vote him. Like that's what happens to him goes from this to the ruler of Israel and conqueror of a world-class enemy. Let me say this. The takeaway from this morning is this. Remember the Lord. That, that's, the, that's the linchpin. That's where it turns. That's the crux. They forgot the Lord and then served. Remember the Lord. But can also with this spirit of the Lord, can I can also say... Remember who the Spirit has transformed you into. Those, those go hand in hand so often we forget both. The Spirit of God has transformed you from a hopeless orphan to a forever fathered child. Remember Remember, he's transformed you from a wolf into a sheep. 
from a victim to more than a conqueror. So remember, Lord, don't forget him. Don't forsake him. Don't disregard him. Don't uh, no longer take him to count. No, remember him. And also remember what he's done for you and who he's made you. Some of us desire to live a godly life, but but we're in a recurrently disappointed struggle against habitual sin, tripping over the same bad habit, tripping over the same embarrassing weakness, tripping over the same sinful slavery that you hoped to be free years ago of. At, 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 every, at the heart of all those besetting sins, that beset, whatever that is for you, at the heart of that is a struggle. At the heart of that struggle is an idol. That, that maybe you keep dealing with the habit. You keep trying to address the mistake. You keep trying to just throw stuff at the sin, but you're not addressed what's going on in your heart. And so you may get rid of some things, but it just shows up in new ways. You may cut off some of the weeds at the grass level where you can see, but then it turns into something else and it's a different weed with the same root. And so this, this book keeps coming at us to expose our hearts, meaning God keeps on us saying, what is going on in your heart? Where are you uh, 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 having these compartments? Where are you having uh, side, having mistresses, having others? Know your heart. Don't drift through this world just going with the flow because underneath that, your heart is guiding you somewhere. In the Bible, your heart is your control center. It means the three main operations of the inner you. It means your mind and your affections and your will. In her book, Idols of the Heart, Elise Fitzpatrick, she has a figure for this, for a biblical portrait of the heart. So with mind, affections, and will, she, she lists it out a little bit to kind of see what's happening here. And she says, mind, that's your thoughts, beliefs, understanding, your memory, your judgment, your discernment, your conscience. Affections, this is also part of your heart. It's your longings, your desires, your feelings, your imaginations, your emotions, your will. It's what chooses and determines action. Think, uh, think about, let's stick with the fertility religion. Think about sexual temptation. When that temptation comes or that attack from the enemy comes, we respond often with what? Two things, fear. Fear that we can't be happy without this. That's how the temptation comes at us or how we react to it. Can't be happy without this. You won't be right without it. Others of us react with pleasure. Here's this temptation. Oh, this will make me happy. I can't withhold pleasure for myself. This is good. This is what will make it happen. And we react with our functional God or the ruling desire in our heart. 
when that fear or that pleasure comes at us, that's how we're thinking about it. What's ruling our hearts is what makes that decision for us. What God you submit to chooses that for you. What Lord you live under tells you which way to go with that, directs you, shows you, chooses. And then that bleeds out into to fruit. Rather that be godly, gracious, loving fruit of the Spirit, or rather that be sinful responses in whatever that sexual temptation is to the extent, to its action. As James says, is it that desire gives birth to sin, to death. Are you aware of the war in your heart? Or to say it as Keller said, do you feel really the war that's happening in you? Or because we live in a very luxurious culture, have you so numbed yourself to get away from the war in your heart. Are you aware of the ruling desires in you competing to win? False gods. Are attractive or luring or pulling or enticing. Why it makes sense that, ah, no, no, no. I'm I'm not going to remember the Lord. I'm not going to consider him. This path is better. This, This path is flourishing. Oh, this, how they articulate that, how they see this. This is the best way to really see this. shift real fast into this illustration of this. Okay? Headline number two. Ehud, the lefty stud. Verse 12. (laughs) Angela, right? Dan, right? Other lefties? Okay. Verse 12. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He He gave King Egalong Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon, I can't say it, of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Now, Quick little bit about his left-handedness. Not normal. We don't know what's happening. Two things could happen. First, he could add a deformity from his right arm. That's why he has a left hand. That's why he works with his left hand. Second option could be he's a trained warrior. That was a thing. 
that they did this on purpose because everyone expects for you to fight with your right hand. If everyone's expecting that and you come out with left hand, I know this uh, playing basketball. If someone thinks I'm, I'm, I'm right-handed, they think I'm going to go right all the time. They try to block me and I'm left-handed. I just go straight to the basket, right? If someone comes with the right sword in their right hand and they're expecting you to come with the right hand, what do you get to do? Okay. <laughs> See, man. That was it? Okay. Right? That's it. So we don't know exactly what's happening. We could. Why is this here? But it is different. This isn't normal. Something's happening here. That's why this is deal. It, it, at least he's not the normal choice. It's not what's expected. <clears throat> but then God comes upon him, uh, raises up Ehud. Then Israelites send him with a tribute. That means at least they're going to go to him to try to appease him or they have been asked by Moab to give them a tribute. And so they're going, they give Ehud Say, go with him. Let's go. Verse 16. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes, brought the tribute of king, brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. It was an extremely fat man. Okay. Now, this is at the point where you should know this is uh, a satirical cartoon, really, is what's happening. You should know this. You should know that God has a sense of humor and that God has no problem mocking false gods. You see it repeatedly, right? Okay. Egon is powerful, but he's characterized as a, as a comic figure. One might say a buffoon, okay? The Israelites would have missed the caricature playing on his name Eglon because a form, Eglon is a form of Egal. I can't pronounce any of this, I'm sorry. But that means bull or calf or calf. There's also a form of Eglon that is Egol, which means round or rotund. So if you read this when it first was written, you would have known exactly what's being said, right? This round, rotund bull is the king of Moab. Berry is the word that means extremely fat. That's used elsewhere for fattened calf or fattened sheep. So what's happening is he's portrayed as a fattened calf going to the slaughter. He loves luxury. That, 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 that's why you can be extremely fat in this age, right? In their age, that's how you can do it. He's living in the city of Palms. He's living in Jericho. High on the hog. Okay, did you get it? Okay. But he's not bright because he succumbs to Ehud's flattery. But, but this is satire. satire. But I want you to know, Who's the audience? Who's the audience? Is it the Moabites? No, it's the Israelites. So hear me, this isn't about mocking foreigners. It's provoking the Israelites to reflect on their own condition. You want me to say it again? This isn't about mocking foreigners. It's about God provoking us to reflect on our hearts. Now what's happening with the Israelites? They were to be the noble ones of the land, but they, at this point, are deemed, put under, subjugated to the Moabites. And you're like, why is that a big deal? When you don't worship the God of the Bible, the God of creation, you become, and you worship another God, you become less and less human, you become more and more animalistic. That's why you see the sexual morality, the mutilation, the, uh, 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 the child sacrifice we saw last week, right? 
You start acting more like an animal than a person that respects, honors, and acknowledges the image of God in one another. And he's saying, Israelites, you've been reduced to less than this idolatrous clan, the Moabites. Because of your rebellion, because of your prostitution, because your love for other gods, because you won't be content, you always want more. You're not happy with the choices the Lord has actually given you. You always want another option. So I said that to say this isn't fuel for you to mock your opposition on social media. This is fuel for you to expose your hearts, your idols. That's how you should take this. Less about, oh, yeah, I, I have more ammunition to hurl at other people that I don't even know. No, this is ammunition for you to say, what state am I in? Now, verse 18, let's keep going. When Ehud finished the presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool, the cool room. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. So why is he not very smart? Well, number one, he just takes that flattery immediately. Silence, okay. You got a message for me? Great, let me know. You gave me money? You have more stuff for me? Great. Everyone leave. This guy's got something. And then Ehud, what, deceives him a little bit? I got a message from God for you. It's not really deception because we know what the message is, right? It's on his right thigh. We've already been told. The message is the 18-inch dagger. That's what it is. But King Eglon is like, oh, a message from God. And he stands up and makes himself just wildly vulnerable. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, plunged it into Eglon's body. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waste came out. Uh, he expressed himself. That's what's happening. It, 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 you shouldn't think about this as it's coming out from the wound, that this means, you know, he died a terrible death, and and he expressed himself. Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They, locked and, they looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself. Why? They smelt him. That's the place for it. The servants waited until they became embarrassed. They're like, this is too long, you know? He didn't have an iPad, like he's not playing any games. And they're like, what's happening? You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is too much. And saw they had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key, opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me. Because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. 
Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. And then the last judge of this section. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. That's it. Now, both of this, though, should make you think God did this. That, that's what you should be left feeling and sensing. I mean, this left-handed guy, like, how did he do this? God raised him up. How did Shamgar, son of Anath, a little bit of history of that, is that he, he most likely was a servant or a leader in Pharaoh's circle in Egypt. So what's this foreigner that's not even in our country, what's he doing delivering Israel? What's this happening? With a cattle prod? Uh, a piece of hardwood with maybe an iron tip at the end that's supposed to control livestock? He strikes down 600 Philistines? Now, as we've said, this is no reason for violence with anyone in your household, in your life. This is what you should do. Ruthlessly kill your idols. As, as planning and shrewd as Ehud was, as powerful as Shamgar was, by the power of God, ruthlessly kill your idols. Don't, don't, don't take them in and create a pantheon in your heart where you have multiple and Jesus is one of them. No, let's kill them. Let's knock them down, crush them, not live with them, not serve them, not bow down to them, not pick up all their trashy practices that will only disform us more and more and more into animals and less and less into the image of Jesus. Let's, let's kill them. But they have such a grip on us, don't they? If, you, if you'd be honest, if you're aware, if you have sense, it's like idols have a grip on us. But that's why someone else came from Egypt. That's why someone else that you didn't expect shows up on your behalf and kills your enemies for you. Not the left-handed stud Ehud, not Shamgar from Egypt, but Jesus of Nazareth. doesn't have a dagger doesn't plunge it into someone else but openly opens his arm so that someone will plunge spear into his side to rescue you to deliver you from your enemies Satan delivered sin delivered death delivered that's a judge and so then by, by his power, by his power, we live the same way. We ruthlessly kill our idols. How? Well, we know our heart. How do you kill your idols? Well, number one, you know your heart. So if you don't know, how, if you don't know your heart, how do you know someone else? You ask some questions. Ask some questions. Reflect. Take inventory of your week. What do I spend my life on? What do I spend my money on? What do I, where do my affections rise and fall on? 
Take inventory. How else do you kill your idols? Well, you know your heart, but then you remember the Lord. You remember, you turn, you take account. Who is he? What has he done? A, a, a returning of, ah, this, this God, this is the one who's changed me. This is the one who's for me. Not, I just know this, but I sense and feel his love for me. And then when you inevitably forget, turn away, take a sidestep, quickly cry out. Now, there's no theological underpinning here that this is genuine repentance from these people. I don't know what's happening. It doesn't seem genuine as we go throughout this book, honestly. But what I do know is even if it's disingenuine for them, that's a good reaction. A confession to the Lord, good reaction. I would just say, you make it genuine, right? We, we need to make it genuine. But when we do step away, when we do what's wrong, when we do cultivate other gods in our hearts and create a pantheon that we quickly turn and walk away from it, repent. Because Jesus is your deliverer, your God, you choose to regard him, to take him to account, to serve him and ruthlessly kill the idols that you have put on the mantle in your heart. To begin to live out what's really true, he's undefeated. So to put him on level with any other God doesn't make sense. He's undefeated. Doesn't make sense to put him on any other territorial gods. There's no sense to put him connected with a son against a, a God that's connected to just a son. He's undefeated and over all of creation. All these other gods have little things that they can uh, uh, talk about. They can say, hey, we'll give you fertility. Hey, we'll give you a family. Hey, we'll, we'll make your dreams come true. And the Lord is saying, no, no, everything is mine. And because I'm yours and you're mine, everything's yours. Enjoy this. Trust me. Follow me. He's undefeated. There's no other God that, that deserves that spot on your mantle. There's no other deliverer. There's another functional Messiah rescuer. Father, we remember you right now. Because you are good to us and present with us, we ask that you would expose that you would speak kindly to us. Expose what is in our heart, what is going in our heart. Or maybe for some, at least show us that there is something going on underneath the surface. That there is something maybe awry with my affections or thoughts or my choices. So Spirit of the Lord, we ask you to come upon us in the, in the way that you would manifest your presence and show us your glory, expose our hearts, and, and lead us to, to treasure, trust in, and hope in Jesus, Lord. In Christ's name.